listener, and welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King and I will talk with our friend and colleague Kara Lewis about the importance of mechanisms in implementation science, causal pathway diagrams, and her work at the Impact and Optics Centers. Along the way, Kara will compete in our quiz for her shot at Kevin King writing her out-of-office reply. And in the second half of the show, Kara will make an announcement that you don't want to miss, so stick around for that. If you like the show, the best thing you can do is to tell your friends and colleagues, tweet about it, post it on social media, and articulate a mechanism for how it may impact your practice. If you want to talk to us, we're on Twitter. I'm at ThatISPodcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. I'm sure you'll agree that Kara is an absolute rock star. We loved having her on the show, and I think you are going to love this episode. Without further ado, let's get started. All right, everyone. Well, welcome to that Implementation Science Podcast. We are so happy to be here today with Dr. Kara Lewis. She is a senior investigator at Kaiser Permanente. She's the director of the Impact Center. She's the co-director of the Social Needs Network for Evaluation and, and Translation. She is an international leader in implementation science. She was the first president of the Society for Implementation Research Collaboration, or CERC. She has uh, launched, helped launch a new journal, the Implementation Research and Practice, and was is the co-founding editor-in-chief. She has a thousand accolades. She's the co-director of the Impact Center, along with Shannon Dorsey. She has won a ton of awards. She has won the Rising Star Award from the Association for Psychological Science, the Theodore Blau Early Career Award for Distinguished Professional Contributions to Clinical Psychology for the American Psychological Association. She's won the President's New Research Award for the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, and probably many other things that are too many to list. I've known Kara for a long time. I think you just we just talked about this recently. I was trying to remember the first time. I, I do remember having dinner with you and your husband before you left Seattle um, a long time ago, before I had kids, right? 2011, when we left. 2011, left. yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. And I can't remember I can't remember how we actually met or if that... I know that wasn't our first time meeting, but... Right. Well, it was through mutual friends and... That began the the camping adventures and implementation science challenges. That's right. That's right. Kevin, when did you first meet Kara? That's hard to say. I, I, I've been hearing rumors for you know what seems like decades of this you know mysterious rock star named Kara Lewis that you and Shannon Dorsey and Aaron Line and all just loved and admired. And you know, um, the, I I want to say an early memory was maybe at an ABCT dinner, maybe in Boston. Um, I couldn't remember the year. Somehow, I believe Sarah Landis was also there. Um, yeah. And I remember sitting next to Kara and just having a grand old time chatting about all things implementation and science. You know, I, I mean, at the time, I think that was back when implementation wasn't a science. So she was really curious talking to me, who was a real scientist, and sort of how do we make implementation an actual science? Um, <laughs> right. Uh, so I, 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 yeah, I, I have some distinct obviously entirely joking but I yeah I've, that that's an early memory of Carol Lewis that I have I remember that and I thought you were so cool that I would time my babies with yours yes yes that's been yeah. really challenging yeah. and I mean frankly kind of uncomfortable to talk to our partners about but um it's been really it's been well, really nice to have babies around the same yeah, time those are some intimate decisions <laughs> they really are <laughs> I don't care I don't know about you I do feel like a, there's other academics I know who have had one or two kids right around the same time as mine I see them just on social media and I always feel like oh yeah I remember they have a kid the same age and there's like a little intimate you know, secret bond that you have with somebody else who has a kid about the same age. It's kind of, maybe it's only in my head and you should just entirely edit that out, but. <laughs> no, we confirmed that at the start of the show off the record that, you know, we can share in the bloody noses of today. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. There's something reassuring when you, <laughs> you hear about all the travails and tribulations of other parents. It just feels so normalizing. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
One of the things I really like about Kara is that she's great at sort of mixing business and pleasure. So we, um, you know, we always uh, get a lot of work done and we always have a lot of fun that we do it when we do that. Um, one of the things that you've introduced me to, Kara, that I, I don't think I've ever done before was um, the idea of taking a boat ride on at every conference, right? Where did, like, where did this come from? Well, I grew up on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada, and I just love being on the water. And I actually don't, I do recall the very first time I did this was after Cirque, was it 2015? I think it was. I rented a, a boat for all of the folks who were involved in organizing the conference. And it was so much fun. I decided to rent a boat at almost every conference I've been at since. Nice. I've been on a couple of those boat rides. Super fun. Super fun. I remember dan do, um, swing dancing with a good colleague at Cirque <laughs> somewhere, San Diego, maybe. I can't even remember. Long time That's ago. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're so happy to have you here. We'd love to know a little bit about kind of your career, how you found yourself in the field of implementation science. Yeah. How'd you get to where you are now? Well, it is the typical millennial journey, isn't it? Starting as an efficacy effectiveness researcher, finding out that treatments that work aren't available to the communities in need, and then digging around uh, in implementation science in grad school as the field was making a name for itself, and then, you know, nerding out as a measurement uh, expert who had no training in it, so inappropriately nerding out in the measurement space um, and doing methodological work to, to build the field's credibility and utility for Kevin's earlier point, if you don't edit that out. <laughs> he usually edits most of what I say. This is very quickly going to be a one-man podcast. But uh, you know, if, I, if, I, if I edited out most of what Kevin said, it would be 90% of the show would be done. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the gist of it is, you know, seeing that, that treatments work and they aren't available and wanting to be a part of kind of a higher level of change. So... I started with um, psychotherapy, doing uh, supporting folks through through change in a one-on-one -on -one kind of space, and then I moved into supervisor role, and then became the director of a clinic. And I trained therapists how to be doing therapy in a one-on-one -on -one space. And then I realized that you know, helping other clinics do this wasn't quite the level that I wanted to affect change at. So implementation science felt like it had broader reach. You know, you mentioned thinking about measurement, coming in as a measurement nerd. And I, I, one of the earliest interactions I remember having you with you was you were starting a grant and you were looking for somebody to collaborate with on measurement expertise. Who had been, And I wasn't in a position, you were sort of reaching out to me. I wasn't in a position where I could help, but it, it sort of made it stick in my mind that you think about measurement, you care about measurement. And I feel like the people, the circle of people that care about measurement is kind of small in psychological academia. A lot of people just want to pick up a measure off the shelf, trust that what how people describe it, it works as it as it, sa it says, and there's the Chromebox Alpha is fine and whatever. And I guess that maybe could you just talk a little bit about how you saw how the measurement piece fit into what you saw about increasing the credibility, the sort of scienciness of implementation. Sort of talk maybe just talk a little bit about your thinking there and how you've approached that. It's interesting. So. I'll respond initially indirectly to reflect that in recent years, I um, often wonder what am I using from my initial training still? Yeah, because I feel like I've gone so far afield, you know, doing implementation science and cancer and heart, lung and blood, for example, but not in mental health as much these days. And this is a space where I feel like my initial training is really guiding what I care about. And so these basic psychology principles of measurement theory and theory in general, and that's um, related to other topics we'll probably get to today. But I think that <laughs> if I'm being honest, so in addition to my initial training guiding that interest, um, the other two things that really guided my interest in measurement and then other methods that I've grappled with in recent years. One is that I didn't like going through the pain of developing a measure only to find that someone else had a better one and I just missed it. So I was trying to prevent others from experiencing that sort of pain when you have a, a new field that's disjointed and 
hard to navigate. So I, I wanted to be um, offering a resource. And then I just care deeply about being practical. I actually think that more rigorous science can allow us to be more practical um, and have um, a more resource sensitive engagement with our partners to realize change, perhaps. You know, um, one of my earlier memories memories of you as being at CERC, maybe before it was considered this called the Society for Implementation Research, and it was called the Seattle Implementation Research Conference. I think this was the one. And you were doing a mm-hmm. plenary about the work that you had done around the measurements. Oh, what was the name of this? Can you remind me? Well, we ended up calling it an instrument review project. That's yeah. right. That's right. So there's an instrument review project where you went through and you categorized all kinds of various measures uh, across some really important, pragmatic, feasible categories that could be applied in implementation science. And these were available on the website. And you did this really wonderful, I think it was before you were done with the work, you know, you were just kind of started on, starting on the work, but you had you had evaluated a number of tools. Uh, but the thing that I recall the most is that you got a standing ovation for this. And couple things stood out. Like one is that, you know, I've done a lot of research where we work with family members of kids with serious mental health problems or young adults. And when they present at conferences, you know, they oftentimes get standing ovations, but I've never seen a researcher get a standing ovation before. Uh, so that was, that was pretty exciting to see that happen. And then two, I think the reason you got it, not only because it was a great presentation, but because actually I think counter to Kevin's point, I think actually a lot of us really do care about measurement. And we want to be using the best measures we possibly can in ways that are, you know, pragmatic. And that, um, because we recognize that oftentimes there's a lot of different variables that we want to be looking at. We can't ask about everything, or we can't ask these really like lengthy things about everything. And I just really appreciated that focus that you had on trying to deliver the goods to the people. And I wasn't the only one that appreciated that. Well, yes, that was that was also a moment where I um, shared some of my Canadian terms with a far too big audience. Um, and we won't repeat those here, will we? No, no I think we might actually. Yeah. That's where I learned the term <laughs> holy doodle, which was, which was, uh, has stuck with me as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I think it, it strikes me, one of the ways you framed it too, was that if you have this relatively new field where everybody wants to go out and make impactful work, it seems like one of the important things about you know, uh, establishing and thinking about measurement carefully is that you're preventing them, like you said, from making mistakes, right? You're preventing folks from either duplicating efforts or from going out in the world with measures that we already know are sort of maybe not good. So it seems like it's a huge service to do that, you know, that groundwork and that legwork. Uh, you know, a lot of what I work with is is in a, are in fairly established fields where it's more like measures abound and that you get into questions of mm-hmm. jingle and jangle and do you have five measures to measure the same thing and are they really you know are they really any good and it, it sounds like you know you're like you said taking from that theory-based approach and that psychometric based approach to saying okay we have this new thing let's start thinking first about how we just observe things in the first place right before we do anything in science we just have to observe and get the lay of the land so it strikes me also mm-hmm. that that's just a huge scientific contribution that that you've made in that way by taking that part seriously I've been delighted that our team worked really hard to basically create collateral about our process that other people can use. Because if you look now, there are a ton of systematic reviews of measures that are relevant to the implementation science space. And our team didn't do them. I mean, we did several, but there just have been lots of other research teams that have reached out and used a a similar approach. And I think it is a big resource for the field. Makes it easier. Well, I think I think it also reflects a lot upon a lot of your work. You you're really trying to bring a lot of precision to implementation science and really to to truly put the word science into implementation science. Kevin and I might I might joke about that quite a bit, but uh, others of us, you in, in particular, are out there trying to do that. And you know, one of the one of so one of the other things I really want to talk about today is along the same lines, you know, you've done a lot of work around mechanisms and, you know, mechanisms um, in particular, I think, you know, are important for science because we're always like looking for causality. So I was just wondering if you could, we could dig into this a little bit. Like how did, how did you get into this mechanisms field? What are mechanisms? Why are they important? Why should this field be talking about them? Okay. I'll tell you two different stories and you can decide which one is true. So 
The first story is that despite what it may seem when you look at my portfolio of work, I care mostly about practical impact and that's why I care about mechanisms. So I, I genuinely want the field to realize on its promise, bridge the science to practice gap. And to me, mechanisms is like the nerdy scientific term for how, how do things work? And you can answer what and whether questions, those are important, but we really need to know how, why, when, for whom, under what circumstances, because guess what folks, context matters in implementation science. So that's maybe, you know, uh, one pathway of getting there. The other pathway of getting to mechanisms was um, in 2014, when the National Institute of Mental Health published their experimental therapeutics approach and required all applications to embrace it, which was really underscoring the import of neuroscience and biological and deeper mechanisms, a lot of our colleagues were concerned that they were like doubling down on the promise of neuroscience and overlooking psychological system, community level factors. They were so concerned that their research wouldn't be valued that they were looking to other institutes. And there just happened to be a study section for the dissemination, implementation, research and health meeting that I was at as an early career reviewer. And at lunchtime, I was talking to David Chambers about this experimental therapeutics. And instead of being afraid of it, how we could actually help people see that mechanisms at the psychological, social system level should also be articulated, tested, and, and established. And so we thought we could write um, a little commentary about this turned into a four or six year systematic review and then several grants <laughs> uh, to, to, to try to make progress uh, on that front. But you, you can pick which of those pathways um, really got me to mechanisms where I'm at today. Maybe it's I mean, it's, it seems, you know, uh, I think particularly given the, <clears throat> like, as you said, the sort of last decade emphasis of NIMH on the biological and the neuroscience um, and it seems like that's, you know, it, it seems like it's really taken over the field in ways that are somewhat good and, you know, uh, uh, somewhat bad. I mean, even to the point of the former NIMH director, Tom Insull, writing an entire book saying we spent billions of dollars and we learned nothing, right. which many of us might have said, hey, we could have told you that 10 years ago. I, but it seems, you know, to me, especially impressive that you and I think other leaders in the implementation science field have, it sounds like, as you argue, you're like using the mechanisms approach to keep behavioral funding alive in NAMH. It's it, at least my heuristic for years was, well, you can't get anything funded at NIMH if it's either not focused on neuroscience or not focused on DNI. And it was sort of, that was mm -hmm. it. And um, it seems like it's a real credit to that st strategic thinking you were using to say, hey, let's figure out how things work regardless of the level of the mechanism. Let's th think about this. And it sounds like you were able to sell NIMH at a time where nobody else could sell anything <laughs> to them that wasn't, you know, somehow biologically based. I just, I just want to comment. I think that's impressive. Well, I honestly was really lucky to be situated as an early faculty member in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University, where the majority of my colleagues were basic scientists and, in fact, neuroscientists. And I say that I was lucky because I got to learn so much about their perspective, their background, their approaches and design, and they respected me a lot. And our department chair, Bill Hetrick, respected implementation science so much that he and I brought our doc, so the research domain criteria, um, which can hyper-focus on biological levels of change, but doesn't only. Um, and, and we brought that together with clinical translational science spanning all the way to implementation, and we got a T32 funded. And so for me, that created space to, to think about all of these levels of analysis um, and across the whole translational continuum and how do we help scientists who are doing really important basic science be thinking ahead to implementation, even in the types of measures they're using, because perhaps one day their measures should be practical tools in a clinical setting and not just in a research lab that can't be scaled. So. Yeah. It's such an amazing perspective, because if you take our docs seriously, they really are talking about multiple levels of analysis. And I feel like a lot mm -hmm. of our field, and again, this is my heuristic, I've never been a 
you know, behavioral, I've never been a behavioral neuroscientist I, and I have tremendous respect for those that, that do the neuroscience. Cause it's really challenging, even at the, you know, the very basic level. Um, but to take our docs really seriously, and instead of saying, Hey, it's just about biology to say, no, they're talking about multiple levels of analysis. And I love that. I just love that idea, especially of thinking forward, um, about it. It's something I, I always think about when I'm in study section, reading treatment studies, I'm always thinking forward because I've hung around with folks like you and Mike and, and other implementation scientists, I'm always like, okay, how is this going to work when you go implement this in another clinic? How is this going to work when you're putting this in play in another medical record system? Even if, you know, a, mm -hmm. a, a trial is very specifically designed for one system, are they measuring things that you could then think about using for adaptation? Are, are they putting in place a system that might have some scalability, that might have some way of, of thinking down the line from when we actually want to go large scale, like all grants and all, you know, interventions are trying to do it. So I just, I just, I love the way you're articulating that sort of way of forward thinking. It's really cool. Well, we're lucky to have you in study section with that lens because not everybody does. I'm curious, like those, for those listeners who are kind of relatively newer to the field, you know, you described mechanisms as the how, and we talked a little bit about some of the biological mechanisms that are out there, which may be regions of the brain becoming activated, which I always, I mean, obviously I'm not that, I'm not a neuroscientist, so, um, but the, the that kind of, to me, that's almost like a symbology of a mechanism than an actual mechanism itself. But um, I'm kind of curious, like what, like, can you give us some examples in implementation science uh, for something that's impacting a behavioral health um, uh, issue? Like what would a mechanism be and how would one measure it? Oh, good question. I mean, I think the most typical um, implementation strategy that people would be familiar with would be like an educational meeting or a training. Um, and obviously that can house lots of different activities within it. Uh, but perhaps across those activities, the mechanism of, of learning um, is, is what you're trying to, to do. Um, and you can get much more complex or just consider different implementation strategies that are common such as audit and feedback, perhaps one of the most well-studied implementation strategies as surfacing an, a performance standard gap, like a, a discrepancy in how people are acting or behaving. We've been through a, an R01 from the National Cancer Institute actually trying to work through 30 of the most commonly used strategies and articulate their mechanisms and how we're starting is, is from the literature, looking first for conceptual papers, then through systematic reviews, and then through individual empirical articles, and then talking to subject matter experts, and sometimes talking to subject matter experts earlier. And I guess all of that to say, rarely are mechanisms are even articulated. And almost never are the barriers they're intended, the strategy is intended to resolve, almost never are the barriers named. So the, you mentioned the word precision, and that's, that's something that I, I care a lot about. I just want us to be more precise when we're selecting strategies, when we're operationalizing them for a given setting. If we're more precise, we might be more, being more respectful to our um, practice partners because we'll have more promise of impact if we can check our assumptions, think causally, and make a convincing argument that this strategy has the promise of activating this mechanism to resolve this barrier and achieve this outcome. So I'm, I'm curious, I, you know, I've done a lot of work with statistical mediation in my career. And a lot of the arguments about statistical mediation are, you know, how do you calculate it correctly? What's the right standard error? It's all a bunch of esoteric, you know, quanty stuff. And rarely are, are people articulating the causal case for how the mediation works. And mediation often is conflated with mechanisms, as you're saying. So I'm yeah. wondering how, how do you see sort of where, what's the difference and similarities with statistical mediation and the way, I guess, maybe the way a lot of people in our field think about mechanisms and how you, you're thinking about mechanisms in implementation science sort of specifically. I guess where I would start is to say that I definitely want empirical tests of strategy causal pathways and how you might do that rigorously would be through mediator moderator testing 
and there are specific designs that would allow you to have more confidence in the, in the manipulation of the strategy and measurement timelines and paradigms that would allow you to detect its change in a precise way. So I want the field to go there. I want the field to do that for discrete strategies in analog spaces, just to build almost like the basic science of implementation science. Like here is evidence that, you know, these 30 strategies could work this way. They, you know, they, there might be different moderators and preconditions and things that need to be um, in place or amplified to, to realize that, you know, the outcome that it might lead to. But so in some, I, I want more empirical testing of discrete strategies. Mediators and moderators are important for that statistical testing. I think they shed light on mechanisms. They themselves are not mechanisms. Mechanisms is a uh, mechanisms are often um, not directly measurable. You can um, convince yourself that that you're activating them based on manipulation and design by actually measuring change in a proximal mechanistic outcome and not the mechanism itself. The mechanism is a complex process, often multi-step, especially when you're thinking at the system level. And so naming it and then figuring out the right measurement paradigm uh, is, is a, a, a lot of work that I think our field needs to do. But I probably spend more time thinking about mechanisms and moderators just from a conceptual implementation planning space. So usually people come at an implementation problem with the outcome in mind. I wanna get more penetration. I wanna get more fidelity. I want providers to adopt something new. Um, and then they kind of work backwards. They're like, wait a second, this barrier is in the way of achieving that outcome. And then once they think about the barrier, they start throwing strategies at it. And, and that's actually the case uh, in many instances that they're literally throwing familiar strategies at it. Like I, my health system does PDSA cycles. So I threw that at this barrier. Well, guess what? the mechanism you needed to activate uh, or the barrier you needed to address wasn't low practice change capability. It was low relative priority. You're, you're not gonna change necessarily low relative priority by throwing a really resource intensive PDSA cycle at a small implementation team. So for me, why I think, and it's not just about mechanisms, it's that causal pathway and it's the factors that influence it along the way that actually is really helpful for practical planning. And so I, I honestly think more often than I should about the term mechanism and how that's such a turnoff for practical people. <laughs> so I actually have a plain language expert we're working with to try to like rebrand this stuff because we have developed this method of causal pathway diagrams to articulate strategy pathways and that's that too, such a turnoff. I mean, it, I think it might resonate for um, really theoretically oriented researchers, um, but that's not the intent of, of a lot of what we're trying to do with these causal pathway diagrams and by centering mechanisms. Well, and I think you, you know, you bring up uh, an important point here about like you know, sort of articulating the difference between how we traditionally thought about mediation, which is, which comes from a really different way of thinking, right? Which is like, I, I created this program and it works and I want to figure out how. And so we're thinking about what are the intermediate steps and you're, you almost describe a backwards process where you're like, we have this problem we want to solve. And then, and we're sort of backing up the chain. Uh, it, so it's not like you're putting in some black box and then you want to figure out what the intervening process of that black box is. I think it also, the way you're talking highlights, you know, really important uh, ideographic component for like to think about situational moderators, situational barriers that might differ from one to another that you can still study systematically. Um, and, and, you yeah. know, and I'll, I'll say in my career, I've done a lot less mediation over time because even though you can get some of these rigorous designs, they never, we, we never get to the right time scale. It's, it's really hard. Like what's the right mm -hmm. time scale for like teaching somebody a new skill and then watching them practice that skill? Like, is it, and it's going to be different for every person. For some people, it's going to be weekly and you'll just see weekly improvement. But then do we really have the right statistical tools to really capture, you know, intervention delivery, skill change, and then change in outcome? Because a lot of these things travel hand in hand, you know, like mm -hmm. a provider might get more skillful and have better outcomes with their clients, but those two processes are going to be iterative. The private provider maybe gets a little more skillful. They have a little bit better outcome. You can have other people with sudden gains. You're going to have people who mm -hmm. sort of never change and then finally, you know, get it at the end. I mean, that's all to say, 
I sort of, I feel like from the statistical side, it's, it's really challenging to get the right design. And maybe we're barking up the wrong tree to have, you know, to, to even try to get at it from a design perspective, um, rather than, maybe I'm mishearing what you're saying, but rather than focusing on, let's figure out all these things we could throw at it and work and under what conditions, like how do these strategies work under what conditions? Um, and, you know, and, and that's, I, I just, I, I like a lot of, of what you said. I also noticed. Well, I, I'll respond by saying that um, I, again, coming at this from a practical perspective and also wanting to accumulate evidence of strategy, causal pathway and impact, our team talks a lot about like signal and, you know, the, that there's, it, there's a plausible pathway that could be activated um, because I think I mean, ultimately, <laughs> simulation modeling and system science might allow us to, to really appropriately de design and capture the, the various complex multi-level inputs and outputs of an implementation strategy set. But I think if we are, if there's like good enough evidence to help us do a better job of selecting strategies, that's what I think is, is exciting, you know, designing empirical tests for a signal. So that you are at least more confident in saying to a community partner, let's try these few strategies here and in this order, because this one might, you know, address the precondition to allow this other one to then be um, effective. Yeah, maybe in some way we're kind of talking about the deductive versus inductive approach. And I really like how you are describing your work as being, you know, thinking about this um, coming up with good logical rationale for why something may be or may not be effective and then going out and testing it. I mean, for me personally, when I think about the difference between mechanisms and mediators, you know, I guess it just kind of lands squarely in, in the, in the statistical realm, probably like Kevin, your statement earlier that like, maybe it exists, but you can't measure it. I, I, I'm always like, well, if it exists, we can measure it. But I do agree with <laughs> Kevin where like, maybe we can measure it, but we can't measure it at a time level quickly enough to know you know what I mean to right. really like get to that but to me like at a statistical level it's like mediators are just between you know there there may be a, a flow of events one thing um is correlated with another that's that's downstream and then that thing is correlated with with something else that's downstream but a mechanism one thing is causing that thing that's downstream and then that thing is causing something that's down and it's really that causal aspect to it and you are right I wish we had a different word for it you know I like to try to say like what's the rationale for something mm -hmm. or what's the reasoning for something why something may actually have an impact but that seems pretty wordy and doesn't have quite the ring to it I feel like Brian Mittman's more recent uh, discussion around form and function is resonating with people. And I'm not going to suggest it's, it's an exact one-to-one, um, -one, but I, I feel like that's more accessible um, and opens a door that mechanisms doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you described then, so a real focus on making some practical impact and helping people sort of pre-think through why, uh, like what mechanisms are being activated through various implementation strategies, what sort of barriers they want to um, get around. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing, I think around causal pathway diagramming and other ways of helping people kind of have tools, like giving people tools for identifying mechanisms before they um, go out to do an intervention. We think of these causal pathway diagrams as really just a check on your assumptions. And they are intended to be like napkin friendly activities. Now, like you've participated in some of these and you might disagree that they are friendly for napkins, but <laughs> you've participated in Miro boards and, and other ways of constructing them. But that might be for a different purpose, you know, um, when you're really trying to put out there to the world, perhaps like establish a micro theory of how a strategy works, then you might convene a group of people and go to the literature, both theoretical and, and empiric to construct these. But, um, but if, you're, if you're really just trying to do careful planning with or for your partners, you might even keep it in a table format where it's strategy, mechanism, barriers, and then maybe a fourth column of outcomes. And you're just looking across the row going, could it do that? Like, could I convince somebody else that it could do 
that this strategy could activate this thing, resolve that barrier and achieve that outcome. Because one of the things that we've actually learned in our recent work where we are actually trying to create these micro theories of, of commonly used strategies is that more often than not, people are deploying a main strategy and they're accidentally thinking it could get to an outcome like their primary implementation outcome that it has no right in achieving, like no right in getting you to fidelity. Like there's no way it could do that. But it seems like people haven't slowed down and checked their assumptions. Like if I just do this or if I do this and two other things, could I really get there? And it's been fascinating to see that um, that phenomenon where it, it doesn't hold the promise that um, that they would hope. You said talk about avoiding random acts of intervention, and you know, and I think that was in terms of like ensuring that your intervention is aligned with whatever your problem is. In this case, we need to avoid random acts of uh, implementation or implementation strategies by ensuring that there's some alignment there. Um, you know, I think, you know, you brought up training earlier, and I think when you think about causal pathway diagrams, as we've been kind of talking about at the Impact Center and other things, when we begin to think about what mechanisms are at play there, I think you really begin to see why training is so often completely ineffective, right? Because I think people think, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to train them, it's going to increase their knowledge, like they actually, we don't even think about it, like, they need, they have an empty head and we need to put the information in and then they'll go do the thing and they'll do it really, really well. But when you begin to think about all the barriers in, that are in the, like attitudes or skills, like knowledge isn't great at improving skills. Practice is pretty good at improving skills. Coaching is great at improving skills, but knowledge mm -hmm. is, you know, you get a little bit. Uh, you have other other things getting in the way of the of the of implementing the intervention, like other just busyness, people things on their plate, or like you know forgetting like how to do the intervention. Mm -hmm. Like one training isn't very good at helping remind people to do it at all, and then when it is time to do it, to help them remember what it is they're supposed to do. So once you start breaking up these causal pathway diagrams, you realize that training by itself, without attention to all of these other components or all these other aspects probably is going to work very well. Well, and I like too that, again, our causal pathway diagrams are not just about mechanisms. They really demand that you think about what are the preconditions or in other words, what are the things that need to be in place for this strategy to be deployable? And we did this cool activity at a pre-conference at CERC um, where we unpacked failed implementation efforts. So audience members raised their hand and said, I got an implementation failure that I'm willing to deconstruct through a CPD. And in doing so, we found that one of the reasons why it was actually a training strategy, training related strategy, but it, it didn't work because they failed to lock in a precondition. Um, it was X amount of time that the training needed from certain team members and the leader wasn't willing to commit it. And so they had a great training. It had the promise of achieving the outcome they cared about, but the precondition wasn't in place. And there was this like aha moment that might seem like a yeah, duh, and why didn't you get that at the time? But you know, you you didn't know that you had to also do an implementation strategy of leader buy-in or to build implementation leadership. And so that's why I think CPDs can be really practically useful. All right. Well, I feel like uh, I'd like to transition into the kind of silly game, unless there are other things that we want to ask about or that you want us to ask about or that any, Kevin, you, any other questions you want to ask about mechanisms? No, we're good. All right. And Kevin, you got that. You got the game. You want to alternate the uh, questions back and forth? Yeah, that sounds good. <clears throat> I can start. Okay. So uh, we're going to start with an open-ended question. Tell us about the two best days of a boat owner's life. Well, um, the Blue Angels are a part of Seafair every summer in Seattle, Washington. And um, we took our little boys out on our boat during Seafair and had these incredible jets flying not too far um, above our heads while we sat in our little boat in the lake. And it was kind of powerful. Um, I'm sorry, you've already you've already gotten this wrong. This is a, this is a pop quiz, and um, that was not the right answer. Oh. Yeah, negative five points. The correct negative answer is points. the day you buy the boat and the day you sell the boat. But Blue Angels is a good <laughs> a good second answer. <laughs> yeah, 
And then we should, we should, we should warn you, Kara. So we're going to ask you three more questions. You've gotten this first one wrong, unfortunately. So if you get the next three right, that means you win. And by winning, you can have Kevin write your next out of office reply for your email. Well, can I just say on the heels of getting that one wrong that I just sold my boat for the same price that I bought it for, and it was a good day. You know, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's, that's extraordinarily impressive. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next one is uh, the next one is multiple choice, so maybe it'll be a little bit easier. I thought we were starting with an easy one, but uh, we're going to start with the next one. Maybe a little easier. So, I'm going to give you three things that are considered uh, that, and one of them are is actually true that it's that it's considered to be good luck on a boat. So A, bananas are good luck because they attract fish. B, black cats are good luck because they eat rats. Or C, whistling is good luck because it lifts the spirit of the crew. And I'm supposed to pick which one is accurate? Which, which of the, fo- yeah, which of those is good, is truly good luck? Oh, you're really testing the bounds. Yeah. Well, of my and I, but knowledge. if you notice, I did try to stick with mechanisms in there. So I provided the rationale for why the <laughs> action was considered good. Um, I'm going to go with whistling. Mm, I'm so sorry. Uh, whistling is considered to attract strong winds. Black cats are considered good luck because they eat rats on a boat. All right, you know what? Just for you, if you get the next two right, <laughs> then you want to get to dig herself out of quite a hole, though. She's at negative 25 at this point. <laughs> oh, no. We're using an indiscriminate scaling option. But I promise <laughs> this scale has a, actually a very high Cronbach's alpha. Um, <laughs> I have, <laughs> we've jiggered the response options and the items exactly so it can have a high, um, a, a, a very strong psychometrics. Okay, here's the question. Which of the following was described as torture by one of the people it happened to? Is it A, when a large fish caught by passengers on a boat in the Caribbean attacked, sending two passengers into the ocean and injuring three others? B, when unsuspecting passengers on a dinner cruise had to listen to their dinner guests discussing implementation science for the entire meal? (laughs) Or is it C, when a boat on the It's the Small World ride at Disney World got stuck for an entire hour and passengers were forced to listen to the song on repeat. It was A, B, or C. Is it the fish? Is it the unsuspecting dinner cruise passengers? Or is it It's a Small World? You said this one was worth 50 points? It's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, you nailed it. This one's worth 50 yeah. points. And there's only one right answer. You only said. one correct okay. answer. I, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with B. That is correct. That is correct. It was when unsuspecting passengers on a dinner cruise got stuck for an hour. Nope. Discussing implementation science. In fact, the, um, so the large fish caught by passengers on a boat in the Caribbean attacked, um, it was actually three passengers that went in the ocean. So that was a trick, <laughs> trick question. And the people that were oh. stuck on It's a Small World ride at Disneyland actually described it as a rather pleasant experience that brought back nostalgia from their childhood. No, Mike, is that not you? I'm sorry, no. Mike gave me the uh, quiz without any correct answers. Yeah, you know, I gave the correct answers for all of them except for this one. It, the correct answer was C. The boat on It's a Small World got stuck for That's over an hour. That's too obvious. And, no. Yes. Yeah. Also, was, that was worth... Um, uh, it was worth negative 50 points if you got it uh, correct. You were right. You were oh. right in the magnitude, but wrong in the direction. It's called a type okay. M error, I believe. Um, <laughs> or no, type S error. That's a sign error. So getting that wrong, you actually get positive 50 points. And you're up to 25 points. And you're getting that much closer <laughs> oh. to me writing your next out-of-office message. Have you seen we my out-of-office message? Yeah. Mike and I are not rigorous. <laughs> that's why this is a joke? <laughs> we, are not, we are not rigorous scalers. all right uh last question so far you are zero for three but still ahead that's great uh which of the following is a real reason a boat sank in texas a when it tipped over after all of the passengers moved to one side to have a better look at a nudist beach b when the crew overweighted the boat with pro-trump flags and items C, when the captain and passengers shot 35 rounds into the hole trying to kill a fish that had jumped on board. And it's which one is true? Which one is true? I think it's B. Mm, I'm so sorry. You are zero for four. The correct answer is A, when it tipped over after all of the passengers moved to one side to have a better Uh. 
metanuda speech. Okay. Now, Mike, I have a question. Well, there was a boat parade in Texas in 2020 where five boats sank. Oh, really? Were they overloaded with with flags? I mean, maybe there was more than one correct answer. I'm going to send you an NPR story in like, the chat. I mean, yeah, all of these, when I wrote these, they all, they all seemed logical. And I bet you can find one where somebody shot a bunch of bullets into a, into a boat as well. I thought, I thought maybe yeah. you were just saying technically the boats didn't sink because they were overloaded with flags. They just got swamped or something because uh-huh. they were going too fast. But I am. Okay. Okay. You know, we'll give that one to you. Okay. Yeah. We'll give that one to so you. So I think we I'm, can say. Is that 100 points? I, that was worth 100 points. And so now you're up to, <laughs> I can't even do the math, but you're up to 125 points, I think. And you do win our prize. I will write the next out of office message. So next time you're going out of the office, um, send me a quick email and I will write your out of office message for you. It, it, you and our listeners may not know, I've become somewhat famous in a small circle of about a dozen people for writing clever, uh, funny, or just non-standard traditional out of office messages. I started in COVID when my hmm. child came home permanently <laughs> for six months without any childcare. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to communicate accurately that I'm going to be unresponsive to your emails and it's gone mm-hmm. off since then. So I would be more than happy to write one. Just give me a heads up and I will, I will come up with a few clever options that you can use. Well, thank you. I thought you were actually lifting that up as a prize because you were mocking me because my out of office email um, reply is always been um, uh, characterized as far too long and detailed and transparent. <laughs> So, minor character is a short balance. and pithy but <laughs> let's balance it with that <laughs> yeah well that was great nice work uh, um <laughs> was it though okay you're right that was kind of a that was kind of just a positive reinforcement for nothing so i'm i'm, I'm encouraging bad behavior um, all right. Well, thanks so much. So, all right. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the impact center. We haven't had a chance. We've talked a little bit about causal pathway diagrams, some of that work, but what's the impact center all about? What are you all trying to achieve? Well, co-director Shannon Dorsey and I are delighted to have an NIMH funded alacrity center. It is the other UW Alacrity Center. There's one that got funded before us and they called themselves the UW Alacrity Center. And now they just look foolish, if I'm being honest, Mike, wouldn't you say? The joke is that Mike's part of both. Yeah, but <laughs> we do we do like our acronym, which is UWAC. That's cute. Okay. And to your point, impact stands for nothing other than its definition, impact. Um, but, but we are really delighted um, to have a center where we're focusing on um, uh, bringing evidence-based practices for youth with mental health problems in uh, receiving care in under-resourced settings. And the whole point of the Impact Center is to innovate um, implementation science methods to be more practical, to be more resource sensitive, to be more efficient, um, and to raise up the stakeholder voice, stakeholders including youth, including families, including the, the provider and other folks in the system to hopefully improve outcomes, the impact of evidence-based practices. You have uh, resources available for people if they were interested? Sure. We have a website um, that really is descriptive in nature right now, but um, later this summer we'll have a methods website. So one of the fun things that has happened already, and we're just halfway through year two, is that these um, multidisciplinary methods from lots of different fields have already been tested in pilot studies and refined and are, are being packaged up in toolkits. Um, and they're going to be put on a new impact methods website for folks to access. So you can um, get your hands on a toolkit for things like rapid evidence synthesis. So how do you curate the literature really quickly to answer specific implementation science questions? How can you do rapid ethnographic assessment to lift up the lived experience of people in the setting where you're supporting implementation um, and and do so in a respectful, time-sensitive way? Um, And how do you prioritize barriers um, when you're constantly faced with so many when it comes to any implementation initiative? So those are just a few of the toolkits that you'll find on our forthcoming website. Yeah, and that website is mhimpact.org. So I have a question that we didn't prepare you for, and I just want to hear you think about it. And if at the end you decide you don't like it, you can always ask us to edit it out. But, you know, as I talk 
with folks like you who come out of a traditional clinical psychology background and have really yeah, pivoted in a way or sort of innovated in innovation science, I think about our current PhD training model about how in clinical psychology specifically and our, uh, and the way we teach people to sort of, you know, train in evidence-based, hopefully evidence-based treatments, but train in sort of one-on-one psychotherapy. And, and I think a lot of that, I just, I guess I wonder, it's, it's hard for me sometimes to square how we train clinical psychologists to be frontline providers when PhD programs are never going to be a real workforce development mechanism. What do you think, like, I guess I want to hear you think about the, the gap between our typical clinical psychology training model and what is sort of really happening in implementation science and maybe what could programs be doing to help mm-hmm. prepare clinical psychology PhD graduates to really be leaders in implementation, uh, implementation science? Well, if you genuinely want a longer conversation, I also encourage you to talk to William Petrick at IU about this because he thinks about it seriously often. One of the things that he and I had cooked up if I had been staying there longer was different internship experiences. So um, PC SAS is, I think, creating space for innovation and not having your traditional internship where I'm delivering one-on-one therapy or group therapy, but we were thinking about more dissemination implementation science-related internships where you're partnering with um, a leader of a health system or a director of a community mental health center to help them implement um, evidence into their the care of folks who are struggling with mental health problems. I do think it's a, a, a misfit. The, the amount of time that is spent on training PhD students in individual psychotherapy delivery, I think for some people that's amazing. And I think for certain implementation scientists who want to stay very deeply in a clinical space, that's critical. You know, they do need to know the intervention and maybe even be an expert interventionist in order to have the kind of impact that they want. But that is certainly not everyone. And so I think um, being able to limit the those requirements and layer on additional pathways and coursework and internship opportunities could be a pivot that we're seeing a little bit of evidence for, but not a lot, I think. That's great. Thank you. I think about training and this sort of what the role of a clinical psychology PhD is all the time, because I want to think it's important for people to, you know, graduates to have options and graduates to, you know, um, be, have a viable career, whether it's in academia or practice or somewhere in the middle, um, you know, Mm -hmm. or in tech or in, you know, out in others, alt academic spaces. And I also think I, I ultimately think about the impact of like, what are we spending the taxpayer dollars training students you know, to do. And, and I think right. so, and that, that's what I always hear that from implementation science. It's so exp- inspiring because it's folks like you trying to make a direct impact. And so that always makes me think, okay, when we train people in these spaces, what are, what's the maximum impact? What's the greatest good we could do by training groups of, you know, smart, compassionate, empathetic young people. And then, you know, and where are they going out in the field and are we preparing them to make the best impact that they can? So I just, I appreciate that right. thinking on that. All right. Well, you have a you have a little bit of an announcement. You've got a big life change coming up. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So in about two weeks' time, I will be leaving my position at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute and moving over to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at NIH. And I will be the deputy director of the Center for Translational Research and Implementation Science. That's that's so cool. That's so cool. What is that job going to entail? Well, frankly, a lot of new learning for me. Um, so I, I'm excited to get to learn about new substantive areas, evidence-based practices for heart, lung, and blood, as I've done more work in mental health and, and cancer and social health. Um, but I'm excited to bring my implementation science expertise to a really large funding institute that's clearly invested in translating evidence-based interventions within clinical and public health settings. And I'm excited to team up with other folks, funders at NIH across different institutes to stand up training opportunities, to mentor folks at um, all stages of their career, and um, be uh, a support um, and innovator. You know, you've had you've had this opportunity to um, 
work uh, at Kaiser Permanente, obviously a large uh, medical uh, and behavioral health provider, mostly medical. And so, uh, and you've had the opportunity to work with Brian, Brian Weiner at the National, at the National Cancer Institute funded um, uh, P50 center. And so you've had a lot of opportunities to kind of rub shoulders or be around uh, medical health um, um, research as it applies to implementation science. But I imagine like this will really open up a really fun, broad opportunity to get even deeper into this and to think about areas of overlap with mental health, but also areas of differences. And I'm kind of curious if you already have some ideas about what some of those expressions may be when it comes to either implementation, practical implementation questions, or uh, more broadly speaking, just implementation science. Um, I mean, one thing that is part of Citrus that will be new and different for me is is the global health side. So I, I really have done very little in global health. And so I can I, I know from my collaboration with um, Shannon Dorsey and the Impact Center that um, you know, global health environments tend to be even more resource constrained. And um, I think those present unique challenges um, and opportunities for implementation science. Uh, this is um, still a question for me, but I think that the cancer work probably has more relevance um, to the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute than my mental health. There are uniquenesses in the, in the mental health implementation space that um, we grapple with uh, that in some instances, maybe would make things harder, but uh, it depends on who you're talking to. It, I mean, it's a really exciting move for your career, and um, and it's a really big move for the family. So, congratulations! It's um, it sounds really you know stressful and challenging and exciting and fulfilling all at once. That's awesome. So, um, <laughs> do you, are there any shout outs you want to give to special people in your work or personal life? Besides, obviously, Mike yeah. and I. Obviously, you too. But we started with that. Now yeah. we're going to end with different humans. So first, I want to say that one of my claims to fame is that I have been rejected from the Implementation Research Institute three times. So I'd like to give a shout out to that because it creates the platform to say Brian Weiner's name to you all because he is a fabulous mentor and he reached out about measurement stuff, hearing that I was embarking on that work with Cirque and wanting to partner up. I thought he was offering to be my mentor and I thought we were MPIing an R01. Turns out I was PIing and the day before I figured that part out and he put that grant in with me and we got a perfect score on the first round and he has been a partner ever since. So almost 15 years and I'm just grateful to have uh, had the opportunity to work with him and we've met almost weekly since then. So it's, it's going to be hard to transition away from that. Um, I also just want to say that, uh, thanks to Shannon Dorsey, to whom I dedicated our most recent textbook, Practical Implementation Science, because in addition to being my work wife, she's just constantly demanding that the field realize its potential of, of practical, practical impact. Um, we've talked about CERC. It's certainly my academic home that gave me a foundation and a network uh, to grow from. And then Byron Powell is the best friend tour. And I think it's him or Renad Betis that came up with that term, friend mentor. So he's the best friend tour and implementation scientist could have. Those are some good people for sure. Um, all right. Well, if anyone wants to reach you, how how can they get a hold of you? You could follow me on Twitter at Kara C. Lewis, or you could reach me at NIH, Kara.Lewis at NIH.gov. All right. Well, this has been such a fun interview. I know this has been a really, really busy time in your life. Uh, we so appreciate you taking this time to meet with us before you get whisked off to Washington, D.C. Hey, are you going to buy a new boat in D.C.? To be determined. To be determined. All right. All right. Well, if you do, I'm going to be out there riding on it at some point. That's the only reason you'll come to D.C. is to ride on my boat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Kara. We really appreciate it. And I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Thanks for having yeah. me. Kara, thanks great, for coming on. It was a really great conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you liked today's podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues, post it on social media, or name your boat after it. That implementation science boat has a nice ring to it. If you didn't like today's show, you can file a formal complaint about Kara Lewis at the Government Accountability Office. If you want to talk to us, we're on Twitter. I'm at that is podcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King and Kara Lewis, we'll catch you next time. I clearly don't understand how games work.